In today's episode, we interview the amazing Brandon. The amazing Brandon. Sounds like he's a he's a magician. <laughs> but seriously, we interview Brandon from the Starting Nowhere podcast. Stand by, true believers. Here's another episode of You're Not My Father. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to You're Not My Father, the best family-friendly podcast from Alaska and Anchorage in general, maybe. That's a bold statement. I don't think it's going to pay off. Anyway, I'm your host, Thomas Brando Greenman. I am a father, a husband, and my curiosity mistakes have given me a world of experiences that I want to share with you and make you laugh and educate you and all that other good stuff that maybe a good podcast should be about, but... We're probably just not going to give you today. <laughs> Our podcast is made for you to learn something positive, something that you can apply to your life as both a parent, a kid, or otherwise. So without further ado, let's do something. Today's episode is sponsored by Ginger Ale, the very tasty drink that's made from a root that you dig out of the ground that you grind up and beat into a pulp and somehow or another turn into a tasty soda beverage that people like to drink when they're on airplanes or when they have stomach upset uh, problems or they're sick or that type of stuff. Me, I just like it because it's got the word ale in it and my father used to give it to me. And as a kid, I'd be like, sweet, I'm drinking beer. Now, they're not really sponsoring our episode, but if you have disposable income and you want us to spread the word on your product in a future episode or otherwise, let us know at facebook.com slash ynmfshow or at our new website, www.ynmfshow.com or via email at ynmfshow at gmail.com. Today, we're speaking with Brandon from the Starting Nowhere podcast, an amazing show where he interviews people on interesting, controversial, and fun topics. But now, we're going to flip the script, interview him on our show. Good morning, Brandon, and how are you? I'm living the dream. How are you doing today? Uh, too blessed to be stressed. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, why don't you tell us uh, and our listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Brandon. Um, I'm originally from the Midwest, born in Illinois, but I consider myself from Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, to be uh, specific, just because I lived there from seven to 20, uh, where I joined the military. I was active duty Air Force for just shy of 11 years. Um, 
I, I have my bachelor's and my master's and I work in supply chain for a defense contractor. And I was the first member of my family to get a four-year degree and then a first the first member of my family to also get an advanced degree. Um, and now I live in Miami, Florida with my beautiful girlfriend who is pursuing her PhD in epidemiology. And so we'll be here for the duration of her finishing out her PhD and then we're off to parts unknown. That is amazing. I didn't realize that you were... Yeah, you you've you've had a full life so far. I mean, um, are, are, would you say that you're in your thirties, forties, somewhere? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm mid thirties. Okay, tell you what, you've you've led an amazing life. Eleven years in the military, bachelor's degree, master's degree, um, and your girlfriend, uh, epidemiology. What is that? I I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head what that is. Yeah, I've gotten better at it over time, but I'm still not great at it because I remember on our first date, you know, we're, you're doing this uh, standard first date the stuff and you're introducing each other, asking what you do and everything. And she tells me she's an epidemiologist. At first, I couldn't even say the word, let alone know what it was. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's become a lot more popular now, or I should say more commonly known because of uh, COVID-19 and everything going on. So an epidemiologist, is essentially, they study diseases. They Well, oh. not just diseases, but she, the way she referred to me to help me understand it, the first thing is like, anytime you hear the word epidemiology, think about the root word of like an epidemic. And essentially yeah. what they do is they try to study the spread, the causes, and how they can affect diseases with either medicine or knowledge and those type of things. So they just do all things research when it comes to uh, communicable diseases and things like that. Is that something that she's, I, I've, I've just got to kind of be kind of curious here you know, with the pandemic and all, was this something that she had on her radar ahead of the pandemic or was this something that, you know, was kind of during or? No, she, she's done most of her work in cancer. So she wasn't, she's not somebody who's usually looking at uh, diseases that are, you know, transmittable between people and things like that. She's done more of her research in, uh, you know, cancer and things like that, that you can't catch necessarily. But, um, but she, it was really helpful during the pandemic, you know, when I was just like anybody else and I don't know what I don't know. And she was able to translate a lot of that stuff for me because obviously she spent, you know, decade plus, uh, trying to study that for her, uh, not specifically COVID-19, but just diseases and things in general. So she was able to translate a lot of what's happening, why the processes are going the way they are, what this actually means when they say things, you know, so it was really, it was like having my own little Dr. Fauci in the house, if you will. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I bet she's probably better looking than Dr. Fauci, though. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Fauci's an attractive man, but I'd, I'd have to agree with you there for sure. I, I do tend to prefer her face to his. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so uh, unfortunately, you know, I'm assuming that her her job role is going to be a whole lot more important in the future as soon as she gets uh, done with her, her degree. Uh, but good for her and good for you um, to be able to have that kind of job security, if you will. Um, but yeah, unfortunately we're, we're still in that pandemic mode. Um, so tell me about your, your military career. Um, was the military something that you wanted to get into maybe because like one of your parents was in the military or, or tell us about that. Well, it's funny. I always say that there's two types of people in the military. There are people who are true blue, want to serve their country, um, and, and really wanted to be in the military and it's part of their vision. And there's people who need a job or basically they're, they're, they had nothing else going on. And I was the latter. Um, I, I was adamantly against going into the military, even though my mother originally wanted to join the military prior to being pregnant with me. But when she found out she was pregnant with me, she could not uh, join anymore. And she just never went back because she didn't want to be away from us. Um, and then my uncle, he retired from the Air Force. He was actually in when I, I got in and we were stationed together for a while, actually. And wow. then my, step, my stepfather was a former Marine. He only did like one tour, though. So like four years. Um, so I, I do have a general 
peripheral military family, if you will. But uh, nobody in my my direct line of sight was military per se. So it wasn't anything that somebody was pushing me for or something that I'd really add on my radar. It was just realistically, I think the military is one of the greatest star, uh, adult starter kits that you can have. It gives you a lot of things that you just don't get if you come from the background that I come from where nobody had gone to college. So I couldn't really emulate their behavior because there was nothing to you know copy and so for me it was i was getting kicked out of like my second or third place you know i had no real job i had no real future of what i was going to do and everything and it, it one of my uh good friends he, he was going to join the navy actually and so i i got came around to the idea of possibly joining myself and then eventually ended up in the Air Force uh, through some some other situations. And um, it was a great decision. It definitely helped my life a lot. One of the things that I think is a misnomer or a misconception about the military is a lot of people think the military makes you into something. The way that I've seen it is the military reveals who you can be when given certain opportunities and put under certain pressures. And so for me, I was able to succeed and had a great military career and came out the other side with a great skill set and, you know, free education, VA loans for houses and all that type of stuff. And uh, it's been, it's been one of the smartest decisions I ever made. And I definitely would recommend it to anybody who has the mindset for it. I love what you said about, um, you know, the military, not making you someone, but revealing who you are. <clears throat> That's incredibly powerful. I've, um, I, I come from a military background. I would, I never had the, the opportunity to well, actually I never had the pleasure of serving, but I was born in the military. Both my parents were in the Navy and I was born in Australia on Navy base, um, way back in the seventies. And, um, so I spent, you know, probably five years, you know, in the military system. Honestly, I loved it. Um, I, I thought the military was, was amazing. And as I was growing up, um, you know, my, my dad would routinely take us to different military bases to, to go shopping at the PX and the commissary. And, you know, I had my ID card up until I was 18. So, um, yeah, the military life was great. But one of the things that stopped me from going into the military, because I was, I was definitely very much interested in doing that, um, was the fact that my parents, uh, the military didn't do anything for their relationship as far as like keeping them together. And I saw a lot of other relationships with like peers and my parents, uh, friends who, you know, the military and relationships just didn't work. Um, so I, I at a young age, I've, I've valued having a relationship, you know, family in my future, uh, beyond the military. And really that's the only reason, uh, if that wasn't for that, I would have been a lifer. <laughs> I think I probably would have gone and, that would have been my career for, for as long as I could. Yeah, the military is a rough lifestyle to to live if you're trying to have a more traditional family um, and everything. And I think that that's one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle when when people are thinking about some of the stressors that military members go through. You know, um, divorce rates are extremely high. Uh, un unhappy marriages, you know, cheating, adultery, all that type of stuff happens all the time just because of the lifestyle that you live where you're lucky if you stay somewhere for maybe for five years, you know, and then you have some, a lot of people, and I didn't have this upbringing, so it doesn't ring true for me, but I know it is for other people. A lot of people grow up in the same house and then they'll get that house gifted to them potentially by their parents when they pass away and things like that. And in the military, that's just not going to happen. You're going to move around. You're going to, you know, your kids, if you have kids, are going to have to make new friends at different schools. You're not going to be able to really set a foundation for your family. And that stresses people. And then you're talking about the member of the military being away 
you know, for who knows how long and who knows where and who knows what they can even tell their partner. And that causes a lot of stressors too, because it, not only is it a stressor on the relationship, it's a stressor on the actual person, the military member who's doing that. And I'm sure you're aware of this, but like when one of the people in a relationship is stressed, it tends to carry over into the relationship, even if the initial stressor has nothing to do with the relationship. And so it's just not a great situation for, for marriages to last. But you do see some who, who understand that and they're able to really take on that challenge and come out the other side uh, very strong. But it's just not the place for, for a relationship that's on the rocks. It definitely will be pushed over the, the cliff. I have two comments on that. Number one, the quote. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, and then the fact, you know, a really great point that you brought up, I mean, essentially is, you know, people in the military really kind of don't have any roots anymore. You know, you don't have that family household, you know, that you can kind of keep coming back to. I always felt like I was super transient because mm -hmm. you know, we were always moving. Um, now I think my dad's finally settled down. He's actually lived in the same house for like the last 20 some odd years. But before that, I, you know, I didn't always kind of felt out of place. Like I was always the outsider, you know, that type of deal. Um, but we've got some great questions beyond that. So, I mean, this has been a great intro and, and thanks for, for sharing Brandon. But um, one of the, the first question on my list is always how important do you think having a father in your life is? I, I would say it's not terribly important and let me be clear about that. I'm not trying to, you know, downplay the importance of parents or particularly the father role in people's lives. But I will say that I think in today's society, one, the typical gender roles of parenting are kind of being blended in a lot of yes. ways, just out of natural need in a lot of situations. You know, there's a lot of, obviously a lot of single mothers out there and everything like that. But also just because you can find things on the internet, like your podcast, for example, that provide some of those traditional teachings that you would get from a father or something like that. So while I think it's definitely a good thing to have in, in the life, if you're a child, I don't think it's a excuse me, necessary thing. And it's not something that's going to put you a step behind, let's say, if you don't have a father. So I, I would say it's not terribly important. It's kind of like a value added situation where they can definitely add value. But let's be clear, not all fathers are good fathers. So sometimes a father's absence can actually be better for you than having a bad father around. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I'm not sure if you're a, a Marvel movie fan, but, um, absolutely. So, uh, what was it? Guardians of the galaxy? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, the, the conversation between Yondu and, um, star Lord, but you know, he was your father, but I'm your daddy, you know, um, some of that kind of rings true for me. Like when I heard that, I kind of teared up a little bit. Um, you know, I've had people in my life that, you know, weren't necessarily my father, but you know, they were kind of that, that role model type of figure, you know, sometimes they were, they were women. Sometimes they were just, you know, a strong person, a mentor in my life. But, um, I definitely kind of felt like, you know, that was one of those things where, you know, the role of father, like you said, you know, it kind of transcends gender and, and age in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've always kind of felt that, uh, you need to have somebody in your corner, you know, that is, you know, a strong, uh, role model type. And, and a lot of times, like even on this show, I, I, I'll, I'll tell people all the time, you know, the role of father, father is, is more of that honorific, you know, it's more of a title as opposed to whether or not you, what, what genitalia you have, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that type of stuff. Um, 
you know, it, it can come from anybody, regardless of their sex, race, religion, creed, you know, it's just, yeah, that type of thing. Um, so, you know, whenever you were growing up, what kind of father, father figure did you have in your life and what were they like? So I, I consider myself growing up under a single mother, even though that I do know my father and he was around for at least the seven, first seven years of my life. But it, referring back to it, a comment I made earlier, he wasn't really a good person. So his absence after that kind of became a benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we grew up in a domestic violence uh, household. Uh, we definitely didn't, we're not stable financially or just there's a lot of tension in the house all the time and everything like that. And so what happened is he got arrested actually on the way to um, one of my parent teacher conferences. Oh, and geez. my mother had been looking for an opportunity like that. And so when he got arrested, we went home, grabbed whatever she could grab in like 20 minutes and, and we were gone. We were taking off to Ohio. Uh, so, so the majority of my childhood was spent kind of in that, that world of thinking that my father, if not all fathers, was, you know, persona non grata. He was the devil, you know, that type of a situation. So it, yeah. it, it caused a lot of, I'd say, internal conflict initially of what fathers were and thinking potentially that all of them were this way. And it didn't last for very long, but you know how children are. Um, your only experience is the entire world's experience, right? <laughs> so yes. so for yeah. a little while there, you know, I thought all fathers were bad. And then obviously there were some good male role models, uh, father figures, as it were, that changed my perception of that. And so... For me, you know, initially I had that that issue with with having a father and then being the only man in the house. Uh, well, not a man. I was seven or eight, but, but uh, I, I had my mother and my older sister and then my uh, not long after my younger sister was born. So, I, you know, it was just me and three women in the house. And um, so that created an interesting dynamic, both in the household, but also in my mind as I'm trying to evaluate what it is to be a male, right? Um, what, what does that mean for my place in this house? What does that mean for my place in this world? And then what should I be as I get out there and I have this additional experience of being around women my entire life instead of just being, you know, the more traditional upbringing of having that father that you emulate and who teaches you about the world and all that type of stuff. So um, long answer to a short question, but I, I think for me, just the father figure I had in my life initially was, was a poor one. And I'm still in contact with him from time to time too. So it's not like he doesn't exist to me. Um, but then I gained some other good ones along the way. But for me, the most important part was that I was able to kind of really establish myself and my way of thinking with less input than maybe a traditional household would have had. I, I hear you. Um, you know, it kind of echoes a kind of similar experience with me. Like my dad was always working. Uh, my parents got a divorce at an early age and he, he left, he had to pay child support and alimony and he just couldn't do that in the small little town that we were in. The, the opportunities weren't there. So he did what he knew best, you know, military, um, government, that type of thing. And he was hardly ever at home. And like you, I had questions. I was, I had a sister and a mother and I didn't know what to do, you know, as, as a guy, a kid, you know, boy, um, it, it was difficult. Um, my step or my mom never remarried or, or she didn't have any boyfriends that she came around at the house. Did your mother ever remarry or did, was there other men that she brought into your life that, that kind of helped to fill that role for you? Well, so, so let's start there. I think it's interesting just from my perspective of how your upbringing can 
form your world perception, right? So my mother was never married to my father. Um, oh, and so, okay. so she never, she did actually didn't get married until she was like in her fifties, but, uh, she, there were other men who, who did come around, but generally speaking, she wouldn't bring them around us until things were a little bit more serious. And so there was one yeah. man who to this day remains in my life. Uh, I consider him my stepfather, um, who they were on again, off again for about a decade or so. Uh, and he was a great role model. He, he's the one I mentioned before, who was a former Marine. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so there was definitely other people who came, but for me, again, still being kind of in that mindset of, I don't need a father as a, a rejection of the one that I was given at birth, that I didn't necessarily build those type of relationships with them until that one person that naturally it kind of happened because I respected them. And I think that was what was missing for me is that I'm not somebody who's going to respect you based upon your position. I'll respect the right. position, but I'm not going to respect you as a human being until you show me that you're worthy of that respect. So even as a child, you know, without having the proper tools to evaluate the world, I just didn't see these men as worthy of my respect. I didn't value them, uh, their opinion, or I didn't value the way that they lived their life. And so I didn't see them as a father figure. And then, like I said, when that one finally came along and it clicked into place, and then I had that more father figure role. But even then, I was, already, I was so established in my own mindset that it didn't really uh it didn't click until many years later that they had been a father figure for me like they naturally were doing it but i didn't conceptualize it that in my own head so in in our kind of pre-interview questions you said that he liked german cars and you picked mm -hmm. up that preference um yeah is looking back i mean can you see other things that maybe like he passed on to you as far as like um like preferences in different things or maybe even any kind of skills or um, anything like that? I think one of the things would be being kind of assured in your analysis of situations, not saying it in a way where you don't take on outside information to be able to change your mind, you know, as, as any good scientist would tell you, or, or as, actually it's Max Kellerman from uh, who used to be on first take who said, he's like, when the facts change, so does my opinion. And that's the way it should be. We, we treat yeah. that like it's a weak-minded thing. That's actually how you know, you're supposed to work when you get new information. And so I think he, was a, he still is. is a person who analyzes the world based upon his own principles. He analyzes the world based upon his own knowledge and those type of things. And I think that's the way we all should be to some extent. I think sometimes we get so nervous about trusting our own intuition or trusting our own experiences that we, um, we don't really form an opinion on things that we maybe we should. You know, and, and I'm not saying that, again, to, to stand by your opinion, no matter what comes, you definitely should be willing to change it. But I think that was one of the things that he naturally kind of gave me. He didn't teach me that. He just by living the way he did and the conversations we have, he showed me that it was OK to have my own beliefs or opinions on things and not just to take what I was being given either by the news or the TV shows or my friends or whoever it was to be that impressionable that my opinion was the group's opinion. Yeah. Did um I, I like to think about the little things, you know, for me, you know, um, Sometimes it's just about super little things like, um, I'll give you a good example. Um, my dad would, he quit, he quit smoking. Um, he, he told me whenever he was working for, um, he was in law enforcement for a while and, um, he was working a, a particular crime scene. It was a murder and he was, he said he was just chain smoking and he realized he was just like, you know, what am I doing? He's like, I've, I've put out like probably 20 of these things in the last hour or whatever. So he decided he was going to give up smoking. Um, and so he started like getting these cinnamon toothpicks and he'd always have one in his mouth. And as a kid, it was, for some reason, I was just like, 
I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know, I just, I just kind of picked up that habit too. And, um, you know, just kind of having a toothpick with me and all, all the time and, you know, older now, I kind of feel like it's a necessity, but did, did something kind of rub off on you? Like the little things like from having him, you know, being around, you know, outside of the German car thing, but like, was there any kind of fashion things or was there like any kind of mannerisms or maybe like phrases he said that like, you just kind of just assimilated in your life and you're just like, yeah, that works. Interestingly, he may have been the, one of the people who really started uh, getting me into video games to the extent that I was. Oh. And he, so he was a pilot, like a, not a professional pilot, like where he flew commercially or anything, but he had his pilot's license and he had a, uh, like had a timeshare Cessna that he, he was uh, involved in so he could fly. And mm -hmm. so because of that, he would play a lot of flight simulator games. And so he yeah. had like a whole setup. Like, and this is again in the nineties and the early two thousands, you know, where he had, he had his computer and he got these like complicated joysticks that actually looked like a cockpit and, you know, it had the, um, the throttle and then the actual control. It had the rudder pedals and all the type of stuff. So it was like way more in depth. And so he's one of the people who I think got me into that level of gaming and like showing me how expansive it can actually be instead of your just your whatever is out there in the mainstream at any given time and everything. And so I, I think that passion and kind of looking into things like that really opened up my world and it made me far more aware about airplanes than I would have been otherwise. And so we, I, I grew up primarily in Dayton, Ohio, and they have, um, the air one of the air force museums there because as those who are, i'm sure aware dayton ohio is where the wright brothers uh were from when they invented planes mm -hmm. and so it's big into the city the wright brothers names are everywhere and then they have the air force museum there and stuff so like airplanes are a big part of that city's culture and so it was really cool him showing me those type of things and showing me like just that not only that he was interested in it himself because it's cool to see somebody who's passionate about it, especially from a, a male perspective because for whatever reason the stereotype or the way that we've kind of told men is that you can't be passionate about things like you just have to be kind of very stoic and not have a lot of personality but he like was really passionate about it so it showed me that you, you could be passionate about things also but also it introduced me to that concept of games and transporting yourself into another place by experiencing this this computer screen or this monitor or whatever it is in front of you that you're you're going through and so i think that was something i never really conceptualized until right now that he was one of the people who really got me into video games at that level before that it was just like nintendo or whatever you know right yeah um so two-part question is he still in your life and if he is do you guys play video games together still <laughs> yes, he's still in my life, but no, we, we don't play video games. I, I'm not the best, and neither is he, uh, at keeping in touch, but he did come and visit me for a couple weeks last year. Or, sorry, no, that's not true. It was uh, right before the pandemic, so 2020. Um, he came down and actually stayed with me and my girlfriend, and uh, he had never met her either, and we walked around Miami, and Miami was a great city for him to come visit because he's big into cars, you know, German cars are his yeah. uh, poison of choice, but he does like cars in general. And so here in Miami, there's lamborghinis and ferraris and everything constantly just driving around like just on any given day they're everywhere and so it was fun to walk around the, the city with him and then every few seconds he'd stop he's like oh my gosh you see what that is and then like he's pulling out his he's but i think he still had a digital camera too which is hilarious you know <laughs> i don't know who still does other than him but like and he's pulling it out to like take pictures of these cars that they're driving by and everything like that so uh Again, yeah, we're still in each other's life but we're, we're we don't game together but he did he did start asking me a while back about you know, he wants to build a gaming PC that can uh, play the new flight simulator, the Microsoft flight simulator game that came out. Because, um, again, he still has his passion for flying. 
And uh, he was act- asking me some questions about how, um, you know, different components that he might need to be able to run it effectively and everything like that. And so, but, but no, we, we don't play together. Um, I, I kind of was actually big into flight sims back in the day. I, I still kind of am um, not to the level where, you know, I've got, you know, all, all the different controllers and whatnot, but um, mm-hmm. it was uh, the X wing series back in yeah. the nineties. Yeah. So I was like, that's cool. Star Wars. And so it was like, okay, well, what does real flight stuff do? And, you know, obviously Top Gun and, you know, that type of thing. But um, the uh, new flight simulator is amazing. Um, I've played it on on my PC and I've got an Xbox and it's really, really awesome. Um, I, I imagine he would have a, a hell of a time playing that game. <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, the company that I worked for before the company I work for now, was a flight simulator company. Like they make oh. the real giant ones, you know, do professional military training on them and everything. And so as part of your onboarding for that company, they they schedule you for a flight simulator uh, to where you can go fly a real world, like full, like million, couple million dollar flight simulator and everything like that. And uh, I can fly okay, but woof, I killed us every time trying to land. It, it did not go well at all. It's a little bit more complicated uh, than than it is on the computer when you have that again. You know, millions of dollars they spent in the software and the the cockpit simulation, and, and it's also hydraulic. So it like mm-hmm. it was moving while you're actually doing things and everything like that. And they had like a little bit of a crosswind for trying to come in to land, and I oh, I killed us every time. Every time the screen would just go red, and I'm like, well, that's not good. <laughs> There is a great YouTube uh, channel. Um, the guys, I think he goes by Air Force Proud ninety five, all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess he's he's former Air Force. Um, I guess he's he's a small time p- personal pilot. You know, I think he's got like a Cessna or whatever. But um, he he brings a, a level of uh, super high end professionalism to the games that he plays and all the flight sims. But also at the same time, he brings an amazing amount of humor in that super silky smooth you know air force uh professional pilot voice mm-hmm. um yeah but it's it's hysterical some of the things that he he says so um i i don't find myself as like a like a, a flight sim fan but if you have any love of that you know his channel is hysterical it's absolutely worth watching um not a sponsor obviously <laughs> <laughs> um so kind of just rolling along with some more uh, questions here. So it sounds like family is pretty important to you. I mean, I mean, would would you classify it as that? Yeah, definitely. I would definitely say that family is important to me. The one of the things for me that I, I live by is the responsibility to my my principles and to who I want to be as a person. Mm-hmm. And so, why that relates to family for me is that. There are just certain things that I'm going to do for family that I'm going to represent for my family um, that has little to do with who they are or what they do. It's more to do with who am I and how I value um, living by a certain set of principles and all that type of stuff. So uh, I, I think that family is one of those situations where it's the people who you share a bloodline with, which can mean different things to different people, but it's the people who are supposed to be there and you're supposed to be there for no matter what else is going on 
you know, um, whereas in this world, we choose the other people who surround us, and we can also choose to leave them at a given time. I think family is a, a level above that. And then when you become an adult, and you start putting together your own family, you know, um, like my girlfriend, who we're going to get married someday, right? That that's my family unit now, like that's another tight knit family unit. And you know, and then you're basically adding on to your family, because now her family is going to be my family and all that type of stuff. So I think it's just it's one of those things where, where family means something different to everybody. But if you look across the entire world, basically every culture has a tie to family and there are reasons for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how often do you, you talk to your family? I, I text my mother pretty much daily, honestly. And then I, I try to make sure that I call her at least once a week. Um, and, and I'm trying to get us all centrally located. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that I'll be able to do that here in the really Miami where we're talking about moving to Atlanta, um, where one of my sisters already is. And my mother's a few hours south of there. Um, so I'm hoping to convince her to move to somewhere around the area as well. And then I'm eventually trying to convince my other sister to move there. So I, I would like to be able to you know, centrally locate them and see them more in person because, you know, joining the military like I did when I was 20, I really haven't lived anywhere near them for, you know, the past 15 to 16 years. And so it, it's something that I, I'm definitely trying to put together as I, I put together the rest of my life. So this is going to be a, a technical support question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you get your mother to actually start texting? Because I can't get any of my family to actually use texting. I mean, well, now they're older, but it, it's just, to me, it's like, you got them to text. I was like, that's pretty amazing. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think one of the magic tricks there is, uh, if I could be make a, a slightly crass joke is that there's not a lot of benefits to teenage pregnancies, but the age difference being less pretty small between my mother and I is one of them. So I think that she's naturally just more in an age that was more uh, prone or uh, open to adapting texting. My mother's only 54. So okay. she, she, you know, she kind of came up, uh, she was still in like her thirties when all this technology was still coming out. So she was still pretty open-minded to it and was able to pick it up. And so it's been, it's been great for me that that is the case. So and there's not like, like I said, not a lot of benefits of teenage pregnancy, but that's one of them. There you go. Yeah. Um, my, my dad had me whenever, um, I think he was, geez, I think it was like 32 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I waited until my thirties before, um, you know, I had kids. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's some generational gaps there. Um, so as far, speaking of kids, um, have your, parents pressure or your, your mother pressured you into having kids is, is kids on your horizon? Where do, where do you sit on that? So my girlfriend and I don't plan to have children. And if we do, we'll end up adopting, uh, at some point, but I think I've gotten kind of lucky in, in, um, in that my sisters have had children. And so mm-hmm. that kind of lessens the need for grandchildren. So it's more so like, Oh, we'd just be adding to it. But my, my father, uh, has definitely, not pressured because I just don't feel pressure very easily from people, but uh, he definitely has mentioned that he would like me to have children. And I I think my mother would enjoy me having children, but she doesn't really try to pressure me or push me to do anything. And, and my girlfriend's parents have definitely (laughs) asked if she would like to have at least one kid uh, and everything like that. So, um, but no, no kids aren't on our horizon. And as I said, if we do decide to have children, we'll go ahead and adopt, but I've got uh, five, five niece and nephews on my side. And then, uh, my girlfriend has a niece and a nephew, so we have seven children. You know that we can be the the flighty aunt and uncle, the cool aunt and uncle for, and I, I think that fits more of our vibe better than being the the standard parents. So coming from from what from what you've said, you know, whenever you're around, you know, those nieces and nephews and stuff, um, 
yeah, and and you're you're going to be the cool uncle, <laughs> or you are the cool yeah. uncle. Uh, is there anything like like you've thought like, you know, I mean, every family's got you know the kids that are like, oh my god, what are what are they doing? And it's like I need to go over here and and try to set these these kids straight or, or try to whatever. I mean, I've I've been there and and done that, and sometimes I'm like. Not my, not my circus, not my zoo. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm walking away, but sometimes it's just like, all right, I really need to intervene. <laughs> Have you ever felt like you, you've been in that situation, you know, and, and been like, okay, well, in a fatherly kind of way, I need to step in and be the, the, the pinch hitter father and just be like, look, son, you don't need to be doing that. <laughs> or, you know, what the hell are you doing? Not, not really yet. Um, I, I'm not saying that that won't happen to, to be clear. My, uh, the boys uh, from my one sister are they're all under like six. <laughs> so, oh. so, so they're not really to an age where that might be necessary yet. That could potentially come down the pipeline, but they also have their fathers in their lives and everything like that too. So that, that tends to help a lot. Uh, but I, I think that for me, I just want to be a good role model and try to help them see things that are possible to them. I'm a big believer in the, power of children understanding what money is and how yeah. to how to live with it and how to use it to your advantage so they can do whatever they want because i think to for me at least when i was coming up the only thing that i focused on was how do i get a job that will give me money i never thought about what i wanted to do really you know i had things that i didn't want to do for sure but i never was like you know what i'm going to do this job because it brings me joy this brings this is my passion this is whatever it was all centered around how to make money and things like that and i think if we're able to teach children about what money is and how to use it and how to use it to your advantage earlier on, then we can get a lot of people who do what they want to do instead of things they have to do. You know, um, we won't have any many people going into finance. Probably we'll have some more artists, you know, possibly scientists, you know, or, or just inventors or whatever else it is. And I think the world would be better for it. I think that if we can separate the need for money from what we do day to day, uh, we'll get a much better world for it because people are able to go towards what they're naturally gifted or interested in. Yeah. Um, uh, let, let me pass, pass my, uh, philosophy that I've been telling my kids cause it's changed over the years and you know, I'm, I'm getting older. Um, and, and so I, this is what I tell my daughter. So I mean, you, you tell me what you think. It sounds like maybe you might, you might approve of it, but she, she's always telling me, you know, I want to do this and I, I want to do this for a living and, and that type of stuff. And some of these things are, are not necessarily really great things. Uh, I would say not to discount like, you know, like, for example, I want to be a baker. Mm -hmm. I was like, do you really, <laughs> you know, I was like, I know that you're smart. I know you get bored really, really easy. I don't know if you would really be into making, baking things over and over again. So the philosophy I've, I've thrown at her, I was like, do what it is that makes you money and then take that money and do what you love. I was like, that's what I've done. And it, it's worked out pretty well. I don't, I don't have the benefit of doing, of having a job or owning a company that is something I really enjoy. I mean, am I good at it? I, yeah, apparently, <laughs> you know, based off the amount of money I make and now I'm, I'm a co-owner, but um, is it what I really love? Do I want to do this? No, but it makes me money and we were able to go do these great things that we love. We're able to go on vacations. We're able to go do these trips and buy you the things that you want and do all these cool things. So it, it's kind of the philosophy I've been pushing her towards doing because from my perspective, you know, the things that I love that I end up doing for a job, I kind of end up hating, 
you know, kind of takes the fun out of it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my philosophy. What do you think? I mean, (laughs) no holds barred. Yeah. I have a similar philosophy, but the way I think that I, I look at it is do what you can to take money out of the equation as early as possible. If you want, say your, your daughter, you mentioned uh, being a baker there. Um, that's fine. I, I do think that that is something you have to really be passionate about if you want to be in the cooking world, because it's a grind. It is it is a rough lifestyle. I think it, people undervalue how hard that lifestyle actually is, uh, particularly if you're the one who's financially responsible for where you're working and you're not just a worker. But yeah. But more importantly, I think that if you're able to start early with your money knowledge and you're putting your money away and you're, you're more financially set, then you can go after those passions that maybe traditionally you had to be a starving artist to pursue, right? Because I don't think that's a good way to make, make people make that choice. Do I want to be poor and be a painter or do I want to be you know middle class and, and work in accounting, right? That's always the way we present those choices. And I think what we should be hoping to do is get, get that painter to be able to live closer to the accountant. Then we have a lot more painters. We have people who actually want to be doing these things. And we're instead of just going, oh, I have to go to the accounting firm so I can have insurance because I've got a bad knee or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. uh, so I, I think for for your daughter's case of being a baker, and I apologize if I'm getting the facts of that situation wrong, but um, to be a baker and everything, I would say, why don't you learn about business, You know, maybe get some business experience and then use that to open your own bakery or at least to work at a bakery and then create a good business around that because the skills of business are needed in everything that is open and accepting money. And that does not stop just because you're baking or or running a bank, right? You have to still know the principles of it. And so I think that's where a lot of people get misguided is that they go, I want to bake and I'm going to make all this money or, or do okay because I'll have the greatest food in the world. Even if you have the greatest food in the world and nobody's coming to buy it or nobody knows about it, there are still ways to, to be a specialist in your field and not understand the business well enough and still fail, even though you had a superior product to everybody else. I, I completely agree. It's kind of, so a little bit more background. So the company I work for that I that own uh, part of, uh, we're actually taking it over from the old owner, uh, myself and one of the other employees who's my business partner now. Um, my wife actually works for us. So it's kind of become like this family kind of run business and it's not in any way related to, you're not my father and whatever. So that is definitely the, the, uh, the thing I'm doing, that thing is the thing that I, that makes me money. Um, you're not my father is the thing that I love. So I'm taking that money and <laughs> financing this, but, um, it, it's, it's been an eye opening experience because it's really, you know, it's kind of my baby. I've had to learn business. Um, I've had conversations with people recently, you know, why are they teaching algebra and calculus and all this other stuff in school? Um, like as a mandatory kind of thing for most people, whenever they should be teaching rudimentary basic business classes, because like you said, business is, is really, really important. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, our country in general, I mean, it's all about business. I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of how we are. So for, for my daughter, you know, I'm like, come work for me, you know, make money. You're, you would be good at doing the things that I could, I could put you to work at learn the business, take that type of stuff. So basically, you know, we're, I think we're on the same page. Yeah. It's just, you know, really. Yeah. I, 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 it almost kind of makes me a little bit upset that our education system doesn't really more closely align with what's going on in the world right now. Um, so yeah, 
I think from my perspective, the education system is part of the issue, but really what it is, is we've created another class system within our education system, because what you're talking about, what I believe in as well, I'm agreeing with you, just to be clear, it exists. You just have to pay for it. <laughs> you, yeah. have, you have to find, you know, you have to have the additional money. So if you're sending your children to public school, they're going to get what they're going to get. <laughs> and that often is not going to include those type of extracurricular, as they would call them, classes like business or personal finance, or even like, remember home ec? Home ec used to be a thing. Like, I, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think I went to home ec, but I'm, I was, it was around enough of when I was growing up that I was familiar with the concept. And I think those are better real world skills that we need to, I think, create functioning adults, which is I, something that the school system has kind of lost sight of. They don't necessarily try to push out functioning adults so much as they do teach tests in a lot of ways. And again, I'm not trying to blame teachers. It's not their fault. Uh, right. It's it's the system. It's a systemic issue. It, but we do re- really created a class system within education because we in America, we have some of the highest education possible. We have some of the best top of the line education possible. It's everyone else that we fail. You know, Harvard exists here. You know, Harvard, Stanford, all, all the worldwide known institutions are here. And people come from all over the globe to go to them. So it's not that we have an education problems; it's just we created that class system that where we're not doing good enough for the average uh, public public funded institutions and things like that. And that's where I think we really fall short is those type of systems. We need to give. I don't know if more money's the answer because money can be used misused in a lot of places, but we need to give more attention. Let's say to making sure that, this, that we raise the floor instead of looking at the ceiling and going, oh, we need to have more Harvards. No, no, no. We need our, our George Washington schools to be better. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was a product of public school. Um, and I like to think that I'm some days I'm above average intelligence and I was really bored with school. Um, you know, if there was something that was interesting or just wasn't, you know, the pedantic, you know, okay, the droning type of, of stuff, um, I probably would have excelled a whole lot more at that. It's kind of funny. I was like one of the lowest uh, GPAs in my school uh, when I graduated high school, but I had like over a 3.0 in, in college because it was interesting. You know, they, it, they weren't trying to force feed you, um, you know, the same thing over and over again. You know, you kind of you, you could, you, you had the flexibility to kind of go wherever you wanted to. Um, I remember one of my professors saying, you know, I was late or I didn't show up for a couple of classes and they're like, I don't care. I get paid either way. If you don't want to show up for your class, it's your money. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my God, that's so right. It is my money. I am paying for it. I'm like, <laughs> this is, this is horrible. But, um, you know, uh, me and my wife, we pretty much put ourselves in the poor house trying to put our, um, kids initially in a Montessori program. I'm not sure if you know much about Montessori, but it is those, uh, real world practical skills, um, for kids to encourage them to, to do things on their own. And, and, um, you know, they're, they're learning academics, but they're also learning real world type skills. Like, you know, like for two and three year olds, like they're learning how to put their shoes on. They're, you know, learning how to get water for themselves and, and other stuff. And thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, they are not in a private school anymore. And I feel like financially we can we can breathe a whole lot more. But um, I get it. You know, the class system, you know, realistically, I for me, I, I kind of feel like teachers really deserve respect. And we should be encouraging, you know, the educators at every level 
to really be those excellent people that, um, you know, kind of like, like what your podcast is about my podcast, like, like we're obviously not making any money off of this. I, I don't know about you. It's like, you no. guys are getting money, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a passion, you know, for, you know, educating people and trying to pass along knowledge and, and real world skills, you know, we need more people. No, this is going to sound really arrogant. We need more people like us, you know, <laughs> out there, you know, trying to, you know, pass along and educate um, people and, and really kind of, I don't know, just really elevate each other, help each other, you know, pull each other up, you know, give, give each other opportunities. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I could say any more about that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree with you. I definitely uh, agree. I'll just add one thing that I think is, where the generations, I feel very optimistic about the future in some cases because, and, and I need to balance the statement out when I say it. So let me say it and then I'll balance it out on the other end of it or whatever. But because of things like YouTube, um, we are no longer in a, a state where the information is not available. We simply don't know what questions to ask. So we're a lot closer yes. to getting to where we need to be um, in, in the sense that like, for example, something around my house breaks. I could call somebody, I could do whatever, and or I could probably find something on YouTube and see how complicated it is first, and maybe I can do it myself. I yes. This PC that I'm talking to you on right now, uh, I built myself because I was able to watch enough YouTube videos that taught me how to build a PC. That's a skill that I never would have had had it not been able to find those type of things. So I think we're getting closer to being able to find these things, but the problem is people don't know what questions to ask. And then the second side of it, which is where I said I would balance that statement out, is there's also false information out there as well. And if we don't know what we don't or know, then we can't necessarily evaluate the sources of information all that readily. We have to be careful uh, on the same side of that. So I think one of the good things is that it used to be where there were certain pieces of the education you're like, oh, parents will teach us at home without ever realizing the parents don't know it. That's why so they can't teach what they don't know. And so we're, we're getting away from that. But now we're getting to the place where how do we make sure that the children are learning things or just adults really too are learning things that are actually accurate? Because I'm sure we all have some friend, some relative, and I, I'm not getting political or anything like that, who saw one YouTube, one Facebook, one Instagram video and suddenly had this opinion that's just not based in reality. And it can go a myriad of ways of what that topic is, but they, they do these things where they're not based in reality. And so that's the danger of that at the same time. So I think what I am cautiously optimistic for is that we can start getting some type of skill set aggregator where the school is not necessarily teaching these things, but they have vetted some YouTube videos, let's say, or vetted some, some blogs or vetted whatever sources it is available to them. And they go, hey, read this stuff, study this stuff. This will give you some of those fundamental skills. I learned a lot of what I know about personal finance from from reading a ton of blogs, but that's just because it was interesting to me, right? So right. it's not something that a lot of people may be interested in. But I learned a lot of the personal finance stuff I did at like thirty, you know, because yeah. nobody had taught me. My mom couldn't teach me what she didn't know, and so I, I started reading these blogs, and that really got helped me a lot. And I've really completely re re uh, reevaluated my entire financial system and uh, reinvented myself that way. So I think we're the information being available is a huge step in the right direction. And we just have to make sure that we are teaching people what questions to ask and how to critically think and evaluate the sources of information they're being given. And, and I think we're, we're really close to that. And that will do a lot, excuse me, a lot to eliminate that class system that I was talking about in education because YouTube's free for everybody. You watch a couple ads, you're going to get the same information that somebody would if they paid to get no ads or whatever, right? So yeah. it's a great 
evening, if you will, of the field when it comes to some access to those information. Now, there's still going to be some benefit to being taught it by a professional and being able to answer questions in real time that you don't get from that in uh, the YouTube video. But I do think it's gone a long way to make information more readily available for people. We just, again, I think what we need to do instead of trying to focus on teaching them the stuff, we need to focus on the aggregation of these skills. What should they be learning and what questions should they be asking and let that train start naturally for them and then help guide them on their journey of evaluating that. Because that's the real world. I think the the children or, or even young adults, say in their, their late teens or early 20s, are going to have to live in is that it's not that we won't be able to have the information or access to the information. It's how do we know who's lying and who's telling the truth? Right. Yeah. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, uh, some of the things that, that I've, I've heard people throw out there is, you know, Hey, we want more skeptics, you know? Um, but, but before I get into the, the term of skeptics, cause I've got a, a, a pretty good theory on, on why that's a problem, but you know, learning how to learn, I, I think that's kind of, you know, kind of where you were going with that at least in my, my, my vernacular, you know, it's like, like you need to be able to learn how to learn, you know, here's how you get that education. Here's how you can get it. Here's how you can assimilate it. But like you said, um, you know, being able to trust what it is that you're getting, you know, um, which I, I think for some people, you know, that kind of delves into the role of the skeptic. Um, I forget who it was. I think it was, um, Adam Savage, uh, the Mythbuster guy, not the walrus guy, but the other guy. Um, <laughs> but, um, I think he, he said, you know, he, he, he thought that people should be skeptics in general, you know, they should always question things. And I, and I don't have a problem with that per se, but I feel like in today's world, people have gotten gone off the deep end when it comes to skeptics, um, especially with the pandemic. And this may get a little bit political and forgive me if it, if it goes there, I'll try to steer it back. But, um, flat earth you know, skeptics, you know, it's like, really, <laughs> just because you haven't seen it, uh, the earth from, you know, uh, up in orbit that you think it's flat. Um, so I've, I've seen a lot of that type of dangerous thinking of you're skeptical of things, you know, or, uh, even I, I, apparently there's some people who think this is real, which is really kind of blows my mind. It's a funny thing. Um, and, and I like to think that, no, these people are kidding. Like they're really kidding. Like, but some people that believe that <laughs> this is just out there, um, believe that birds aren't real, that they're really <laughs> like some kind of drone or wow. whatever. I'm like, I'm like, you know, tinfoil hat skeptic, you know, just ludicrous stuff, which, you know, I would classify flat earthers as ludicrous as well. And just you know, that level of skeptic to me is just, or, or, you know, the government, it's like the government is evil, you know, and, you know, the, the, the vaccine for the COVID is just, you know, I'm, blah. I mean, it just, it blows my mind. I, I can't even, I can't even say it. It just, <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of feel like we should teach our kids to be skeptics and to question this data and where it comes from. But whenever it goes so far, you know, to me, I, I, I think where I'm taking this conversation is, is that, you know, we need to be more neutral, you know, in our views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. The, the, the saying that you, you put out there, I'd never heard it before. So I wrote it down, but as the facts change, so does my opinion. That's really 
a, a better critical thinking type of aspect as opposed to having these very polarizing extreme viewpoints that are on opposite ends of the spectrum, you know, try to be as neutral as you can, um, because it's so hard to come from some position way over there or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that, that was a great quote. I wrote that down. Are, um, are you familiar with the show? It's always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, I, I used to not be able to watch it because my kids would sneak yeah, up and, yeah. and crawl up whenever I was watching something. So, um, nowadays they don't tend to do that. So I've kind of watched it a little bit more. So you might be familiar with the episode that I'm talking about. There's an episode where, um, it's one of my favorite episodes of that show. And it is, it does, as you said, it kind of gets a little, I wouldn't say TV mature because it is still network TV. So they can't really, they can only say certain swear words and stuff like that, but it's, let's say, don't let your children watch it necessarily until they're in their teenage years. And even then maybe until they're adults, but, um, right. <laughs> but there's an episode where they, they're having a debate about, you know, who caused an accident where, where Dennis, uh, spilled cereal on himself. And from that, Mac then goes in to talk about kind of religion and all these things and about how scientists are wrong sometimes. And it shows a lot of logical fallacies that people find themselves in when they're having discussions. And there is a great YouTube video uh, for those who may be interested that it, it's a philosopher, somebody who like got their degree in philosophy and like that's their whole like line of work or whatever. Uh, they did evaluating that episode. It's, a, it's something like the philosopher watches it, It's Always Sunny or watches the science episode. I can't remember exactly the name of the video. I'll, I'll try to send it to you after this. But it, it's a great way to go into exactly what you're talking about because what we're we have to understand ourselves as, as humans and understand parts of the human condition. And what we're going into there is confirmation bias. It's a big, big issue that we experience. And what that means for those who don't know is essentially that we feel good when we're right. So what we do is we start to find the sources that agree with us and say that we're right for that little bit of hit of that, uh, that chemical in our brain that says, yes, you're right. That confirmation bias is very, very powerful. And so yes. that's why that, that quote that Max Kellerman uses, the, you know, when the facts change, so do my opinion. That's how we should be. But a lot of times we won't because it doesn't feel good to be wrong. And so we go to those circles who say that we're right and we start that confirmation bias thing. And so that's why when people say we need more skeptics, I'm a little skeptical of that that phrase, only because I'm very literal in the way my mind works. Because being a skeptic still means you're responding to the information you're being given instead of being neutral, which is what you you ended with saying. And I believe we should be more neutral and question things that make sense to question, you know, and, yes. and be open to that's, being one to be wrong. Phrase. Question <laughs> things that need to be questioned. Right. Because the the issue when you're a skeptic is that you're still responding to the information you're being given. You're just responding to it in a negative instead of a positive. When really we should be able to respond to information we're given as the information is worthy. You know, if somebody comes up to me and they tell me, hey, I have a million dollars I'm going to give you, I may be skeptical of that because that doesn't seem right, right? But if I bought a lotto ticket and somebody goes, hey, I have a million dollars I'm going to give you, I understand the concept of what's going on now because I participated in a lotto. I'm going to get that million dollars. I much more am open to that. So the, they're the same phrase, but the first one needed to be questioned because nobody's just giving me a million dollars without you know taking a kidney at the very least. Uh, yeah. And then the second one, I understand why I'm begin, being given a million dollars. So it's not necessarily that I need to be skeptical of the information I'm given or I need to accept the information I'm given. I need to evaluate the information I'm given on the information's basis. Each and every time somebody tells me something, that is something that needs to be evaluated on an individual basis. And we shouldn't use our preconceived notions or experiences that we've had in the past necessarily uh, to, to react to those things because 
what you end up with is people like the flat, uh, how a lot of the people get involved in things like the flat earth conspiracies and things like that are they're contrarian. You know, hipsters, if you will, tend to be a very public form of contrarianism where you don't really like things. You just don't you just dislike them less than other things type of situation. And so the problem is you're still responding to what's going on regardless of whether or not it's right. So to put it in my own personal context where this is something I used to do, um, people used to they'd say something about me, right? Say you're going to do X and I would purposely not do it because they told me I was going to do it. Well, I've been there. <laughs> that, it sounds like I'm a rebel, right? But in reality, I'm still responding to what they're saying and doing something based upon them instead of doing what I wanted to do in the first place. Right. And what, it's so manipulation. Whole, exactly. I'm manipulating myself because in their mind, I'm proving them wrong potentially and it still centers on them. But realistically, I should just do whatever I wanted to do, whether it is what they told me I was going to do or isn't what they told me I was going to do. They should have no bearing on my actions. And that's really what we're trying to get to when you're talking about that neutrality is – you should be able to behave the way that feels right for you to behave. Not feels good, feels right. And that's why you have to have your own set of principles. And that's why one of the things I looked for when I was starting my podcast is I wanted to be wrong. I need to be wrong. I need to find people who can tell me that I'm wrong and show me why I'm wrong because that's how you grow. You don't grow by just repeating things that you already know and staying in that confirmation bias bubble. You grow by going out there and being wrong and learning from how you were wrong and why you were wrong. And then you move on from there. I, I wholeheartedly agree that that has been a very poignant thing and I'm going to take that away and I'm going to ponder that one for a while. Um, so Brandon, thank you for that. That's awesome. Um, and one of the things I like about doing these interviews as much as, you know, in the beginning, I didn't want to really do interviews on my show, um, is the things that, that we talk about and these perspectives that I can get from, let's admit random people. Um, I didn't really know who you were until, you know, we kind of met in a podcast exchange, but, um, yeah, I looked at some of your stuff, you know, ahead of this interview. I was like, yeah, yeah, I would totally have you on the show. And and I purposely didn't try to deep dive into like what you have online just because like, I wanted to be surprised. I wanted to, I wanted to know, you know, and, and yeah, I, I would not have anticipated this conversation, but, I am so thankful that it happened. So, um, and I'm sure if somebody's listening to this right now, they're probably like, yeah, at least I'd hope so. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so as well. But they, they can find a way to contact me if they disagree. I always love having those conversations as well. As long as they're respectful, I do love having those because I think there's a lot of value in those. But um, and, I, and I'm the same way. That's one of the reasons I started the podcast uh, was during the pandemic, you know, is because I felt like there was a lot of people talking at each other and not to each other. And, and the world was a really weird place. And it was a great way for me to get out that energy um, to have those conversations with people that I didn't know about a ton of things. And I'm kind of like a squirrel in the sense that everything interests me. Like I'm interested in so many asinine topics that I can talk about for like an hour to two hours, which is how long the podcast episodes usually are. Uh, and it works out perfectly. So I do the same thing. Like when I was coming to meet you today, I didn't listen to any of your other episodes. Uh, I didn't want to bias myself for how you this conversation might go or what we might end up talking about. I wanted it to feel natural to myself and to the listeners because I feel like there is value in real, authentic, natural conversations compared to me coming on here and pitching whatever project I'm working on and you're pitching your project back and we just have this really advertising uh, feeling conversation. I think that there's value in letting things flow as they may and hopefully giving some good information to people who are out there like you, like you started this podcast for a reason to do that. And I think that's how real fathers 
communicate things. You know, they're not generally speaking, they may be professionally, but they're not teachers. They're not, they're not coaches. They're going to react with you as a member of their family. And that has a certain level of authenticity to it that you don't get when they come in and they, if you're, if your father came into you when you were a child and he had, you know, five or six pages or a PowerPoint slide on, on why he needed you to clean your room, that's not going to feel real. <laughs> it's going to feel ridiculous. You know, it would be funny to do though. I should try that. <laughs> I, I do love whenever they like, this is a really dumb thing they do in TV shows, but I do enjoy it whenever they're trying to make um, like a child who's very, very uh, meticulous, who, who maybe they grow up an adult and they're doing like a flashback and they're doing like an adult who's very robotic, who's very uh, logical and everything like that. And they show them as a child showing why they should get a, a, a pet or something like that. And they have a PowerPoint slideshow and all these facts and stuff. I love that. It, it is hilarious. But in real life, again, you probably wouldn't, you'd lose the audience. Oh, there goes my smart home. <laughs> So, um, yeah, before the show, me and Brandy were talking, I was like, you know, we don't do a whole lot of editing and we'll just have the whole (laughs) show warts and all. And man, there's a big one right there. Walmart plus delivery. (laughs) So so this this is great. We were talking before we got on about how I live in Miami. Right. And Miami is it's a weird city. And the weirdest thing about the city is that they have fireworks so often. (laughs) So I was doing a podcast episode with a good friend of mine and I'm in like we're in this like emotional part, I think, or something like that. And I'm, and I'm interviewing it. And all of a sudden outside the window, it again, it's 6 p.m. or something like that on a Wednesday. And all of a sudden you just hear these thundering booms and everything going off outside. So I can relate to some of the things. There's no way you could edit that out. It's just, it's super loud. No, but, but I almost kind of want to get that episode number so that way I can listen to it. <laughs> it's insane. It was so hard because I, I wear noise canceling headphones and I was still, I'm like, and I asked her at some point, I'm, I lost my train of thought. And I was like, can you hear that? She's like, yeah, yeah, I hear that. I'm like, great. So it's going to be all over the recordings. Whatever. It is what it is. So speaking of funny stuff. Um, so, you know, everybody, you know, I, I think we're kind of cut from a, a similar cloth. Uh, but whenever you were talking about a uh, million dollars, if somebody would give me a million dollars, it's like, you know, not unless they, they took a kidney. The only thing I could think of, because you had mentioned uh, it's only it's, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. I was like. Wait a minute! You can get a million dollar for a kidneys? How many kidneys? We're gonna be rich. I, I knew when I said that that there was gonna be somebody was gonna think that I was like, you ain't getting no million dollars for a kidney. I was like, and you're not. But it was just the only thing I had in my head, my head at the moment. I could see the the title of the episode: "The Gang Sells Their Kidneys." Yeah. <laughs> That, that show is incredible just for its longevity, if nothing else, and all the things that they've touched upon. There's, it's incredible. So speaking of, of TV shows, um, I've, I've, I've had this on my agenda because I, I've, I, I binge watched all of it here recently, or I wouldn't say all of it, all of it up until current. And I've been dying to ask somebody about it, but have you seen the, it's the HBO show um, Raised by Wolves? I have not. I, I saw like a trailer for it once, but I have not been able to watch that one. I'm actually going through an HBO Max show right now, uh, Peacemaker, finally. But uh, yes. no, I have not seen Raised by Wolves. Yeah, I don't know if Peacemaker could. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be the same vein of what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that there's really. Uh, actually, we, we, we could talk about Peacemaker in the fact that. Um, there is definitely a horrible father figure mm-hmm. example on that show. I mean, just absolutely horrible. And and it's almost like, hmm, okay, maybe <laughs> maybe that's why Peacemaker is how he is. Um, you know, it's not to say that having a bad father is going to generate a bad child. Um, certainly, you know, in, in your case, you know, uh, 
not to say that your father was bad, but not ideal. Um, you know, it's, it seems like it only emboldened you to be better. Um, you know, in some cases for me, like my father not being there only made it a stronger desire for me to be a better father for my kids. So mm-hmm. kind of, you know, that theory of, of, I don't know if it's the sins of the father theory. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of theories out there, but you know, if, <laughs> if your father's bad, then you're going to be bad and then you'll be in, you know, it's just never ending cycle. And I don't believe in that. Um, no, and, know, and neither, neither does like an analysis of that situation. The, one of the ghoulish, Comparisons I like to make just because it is so stark is that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Adolf Hitler had a stable family unit. You wow. can see that it's not just the father that makes you who you are. Whereas somebody like, again, this may be controversial because not everybody loves him, but LeBron James had no father growing up. And because of that, it, like you said, it emboldened him to how much he wanted to be a father and how involved he is in his kid's life while running like a billion dollar empire at the same time. Like he goes to all of his children's games. He's on like he's in videos with his uh, his daughter and everything like that. And like he knew from like being 20 that he wanted to be a father and be like a really good one at that. So so the sins of the father thing, I think, is just a cop out. I, I really yeah. uh, ultimately ends up being a cop out for us to just behave how we were going to behave anyways and say, oh, it's not my fault. It's because I had a bad father. It's like. Okay, there's plenty of people who had bad fathers and went on to be great people. Yeah, well, I guess he's earned that title, King James. Then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said, that's the thing to me for small tangent, just because I feel like this is so relevant to a father-based show. LeBron James is so incredible to me, not just because of what he does on the court, of course, but this dude was given the world at 18 years old, and he's had so few, so very few, like controversies and stuff like that like right he was given literally a 90 million dollar contract for nike uh when he was 18 before he played a single basketball game like yeah. i love myself i'm a very big fan of myself there's no way you could give me that kind of money at 18 and i wouldn't be anything other than a piece of crap i would have been a complete utter just ridiculous i've been charlie sheen charlie sheen all the way right uh so that to me is the most impressive thing about lebron is that he married his high school sweetheart uh, he's a very good, active father, very good father to his children. And like all the stuff that he does, like is incredible to me after again, being raised very, very uh, impoverished, very in poverty and everything like that with no father. And just, it's insane to me how I went, I saw yesterday, um, somebody posting an old interview he did with Bob Costas at 18 years old. And they're talking to him about like, people are saying, oh, you're going to be a bust if you're not in the hall of fame and how mature he was at that age to be able to answer that question without just it boggles my mind just knowing what it's like to be 18 and having somebody ask me that it would have been a much different answer so um i i don't know a whole lot about um basketball players i mean in the 80s and 90s that was that was my jam mm-hmm. yeah you know, i um but I, i've kind of fell out of it but um one of the things that comes to my mind is and I, I don't know much about Shaq's personal life but mm-hmm. like what an entrepreneur i mean he is just he's all over the place um i mean would you put him at, and you know, as a father figure i mean i'm just assuming he has kids but um does would you put him in the same class as uh, lebron or you know yeah I, I think Shaq is a very very interesting person because just of the, the nature of his person uh his public persona and then his realistic situations Shaq credits uh i believe he calls him the general the admiral i forget what his father i can't remember if it was his biological father if it was just a father figure i want to say it's his biological father but he had a strong connection with his father uh mm-hmm. or or a father figure in his life anyways and so Shaq kind of is in my opinion he's like a community father 
he fathers anybody who is around him who needs fathering. That's um, awesome. You he know, does give off that vibe, you know, like he's yeah. just a great guy. Well, like there's videos of him going around now all the time and they did an interview with him about it. He's like, every time he leaves his house and goes to a store for something for himself, he's going to buy something for someone else who's there. He's like, I can't take all this money with me. I have so much money. Right. I, I And he's so like, there's a video of him. He's at a store and he, he's talking to this kid. He's like, hey, uh, do you have a bike? And the kid goes, no. He's like, ask your mom if I can buy you a bike. And then it's just him like casually buying this kid a bike. And then there was another video from there was these uh, these kids who were playing basketball in the street and one of the neighbors called the cops said they were being too loud. So the cops came out and the cops played with them a little bit and everything and just, you know, said, Hey, your neighbors are saying you're a little loud. Just keep, we're not going to kick you out of here. Anything like this. Just, you know, just be aware that people are listening. And then, so it was a great video. And then Shaq came out the next like week or whatever with those same cops to the kids with basketball, played basketball with them and then bought them all kinds of gear and then did all this stuff, whatever. Like he's just that type of person where I think he's a good father to his kids for sure. Um, but he's also a good father to anybody who needs fathering. And one of the things I love that Shaq did in, in kind of in the vein of a lot of other uh, wealthy fathers that he said, he reminds his children all the time. He's like, look, I'm rich. You're not. You still need to earn your living and you still need to go out there and make something of your life. You can't just sit back and then hope to feed off of what I've built. That's, like, that's not going to happen. And I think that's a very important mindset to give to your children because we all want to be successful for our children. We want to give them a better life. But in doing so, we need to not make them spoiled where they all they live off of is our achievements. They need to go right. and build blaze their own path at the same time. So, so yes, I'd say Shaq is an incredible father as well. And like I said, more of a community father than, than uh, anything. You know what I like the most about that? You know, obviously him buying stuff for, for people, you know, kids that are, are probably deserve it and they don't they can't afford it. But the fact that what you said go ask your mother <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. if I can buy you a bike because yeah. like I, I, I see two different things playing out here. One, no, you can't buy him a, he can't buy you a bike. You haven't finished cleaning your room. You haven't done yep. any of this stuff. Yeah. You don't deserve it, which is, you know, obviously Shaq's been on, you know, he's seen that happen. You know, he, he's got that experience to know, but you know, some parents just, they're not into taking charity. They're like, no, no, mm -mm, you no, we're not going to do that. Um, to me, that's, that's a lot of respect. You know, you're paying that family respect by asking if I can do that. Um, I love that. I love it. One, one more thing before we move on, just because I remember this one too, just as another example of how we, like I say, he's a community father. We're not just talking about things like bikes either. He went, I don't remember why he was there. He was getting like a watch redone or something like that. But there's this guy there trying to, uh, either make a payment on a, on an engagement ring or, or I can't remember exactly, but Shaq bought him the engagement ring. So you're talking about, I don't know what it was, 10, 15 grand maybe or something, or maybe less, whatever it is, doesn't matter, it's, but it's not a bicycle, right? It's yeah. an engagement ring and he's doing those type of things too. He bought this, it was, guy had to be like 21, 22 or something like that. And, he's, and Shaq just bought him the engagement ring for, for his girlfriend. And I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, the gold digger part of people though, <laughs> kind of makes me think like, did he just sell this on eBay? You know, he's like, screw this. You know, I wasn't really serious, you know, Jack, <laughs> well, I, Jack, Jack <laughs> engagement wedding ring or something like that. Um, yeah, I just, you know, the, the skeptical part of me is like, I want to believe everybody's good. Um, but you know, people take advantage of people on, on a regular basis. Um, I was listening to, um, this really great speaker, which I really connect with, um, his name's Les Brown. I'm, I'm not sure if you ever heard of him. Um, I'd never heard of him up until, you know, a few weeks ago, but you know, his, 
the way he talks, his mannerisms, the things that he says, just like there's a direct connection into my brain. Like, yeah, he's a motivational speaker. I'm not into motivational speakers, but like he, he, I get him like, but, um, he was talking about this, um, this day he was walking down the street and, um, people were asking him about shining his shoes. He's like, no, I'm in hurry. I'm in hurry. I'm in hurry. And he said this, that like towards the end of this, this one uh, guy jumps up and he's like, starts counting. And he's like, like, sir, you're my 100th customer and it's my birthday. And I want to give you a shoe shine. Is it okay if, if I give it to you? And he's like, okay, sure, sure. So he, he gets his, his shoes shine. He said, it's amazing. He starts walking away and then he turns back around and he's like, excuse me. He's like, he's like, what do you typically charge for a shoe shine? And he's like, uh, two bucks. And he's like, well, here's five, keep the change. And so as he starts walking away, he hears in the, in the background, this guy counting and giving the same thing <laughs> to somebody else. And, uh, he used it as a, as a motivational type of tool, you know, but part of me was just like, you know, people out there are, I mean, there's good people, but it, it's kind of hard to find good people like, mm-hmm. like that you can really tell. But on the flip side, you know, you would kind of think like, you know, some random person, like you, you met off the internet, you know, kind of like you or, or me, it's like, would you think that this is a really good person? Uh, maybe, I don't know. But, you know, once you start talking to them, it's like, wow, they really are awesome. You know, they really are amazing. You know, it's just, you, you kind of have to give people time, I think. So, um, what, yeah. one of the things I would say is any place of fatherly wisdom I can give is that what in those situations, that's why when you give, you need to give freely, give yeah. without recourse, basically, right? Because you're going to, if you sit there and you spend a lot of time evaluating people's motivations and evaluating whether or not they're a good person before you give, you're what you're ultimately probably going to do, you may be right, you may not give something to somebody who isn't worth it. But what you're likely going to do is miss out on giving things to people who are worth it based upon doing that over analysis. So like for, for yeah. like the ex- really cheap example that I give that uh, I do enjoy is like whenever I get cash, I always make sure I get ones and I have a drawer directly beneath the seat in my car. And I just put the ones in there. And then anytime I see, you know, uh, an un- unhoused person who's asking for money on the side street, I give them a dollar. Like, is it potentially going to help them eat? Maybe. Is it going to maybe buy potentially buy drugs or alcohol? Maybe. But it's it's not really about how they utilize it as much as it is me giving, just giving to hope that they do something good with it. That's better for me to give them and hope that they do something that they need with it than it is to worry about like just cut out giving away to anybody because they might have a drink or they might you know use it on drugs or something like that. I think it's just when we give, we need to really make sure that we're really, really giving and we're not giving just based upon the consequences because you're right. People lie all the time. People like I'm sure you've had this experience. It happens all the time all across America where you're walking somewhere and somebody has a sob story about their car just broke down or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, I've seen you here for three weeks. How long has your car been broken down? Come on, you're killing me here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's just their sales pitch. And that's the reality of the world. Same thing if we look at commercials. Do I really think that Mountain Dew is going to make me a better gamer? No, but it'll tell me it will. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I, I totally subscribe to the the random acts of kindness. Um, Yeah, I I, honestly, I I don't get to do them that much, but but I try to do it without, you know, any kind of sense of like reward or or whatever. Um, There was, um, I play guitar 
And um, I'm always upgrading my guitar gear because I'm always chasing tone. And I'll be the first one to admit, I'm not a great guitarist, so <laughs> don't ask me to play. But um, I had a bunch of older equipment that just I wasn't using. And so I put it up on, um, I think it was Facebook Marketplace or something like that. Or yeah, I think it was Facebook. And um, people kept trying to lowball me on the price and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, it, it's, it's worth this price, you know, I mean, and, and I watch Pawn Star. So yeah, I know it's like, you know, nothing's really worth kind of what you think it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, anyway, this one gentleman, he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll pay for it. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to meet him. And so I'm, I'm like looking through his Facebook cause I can see, and that's one reason why I usually don't do it on Craigslist because I've got no idea. Like if, if somebody's going to shoot me or just rob me or whatever. So I, I'm, I'm, you know, that military background law enforcement, I'm, you know, I've always got a plan for everything for the most part. Um, but I'm looking at this guy's profile and um, it looks like, you know, he was ex military and some other stuff. And, you know, he's like a um, older gentleman doesn't look like he's married. And um, so we're in the parking lot and I was like, he's I asked him, I'm like, are, are you a veteran? And he, he says, yeah, I think he was a, I think he was a Marine. Um, you know, he was in Vietnam, you know, older gentleman stuff like that. And I was like, at the risk of offending you and, and trust me, it's not my intention, but can I just give this to you? And he goes, what? And I was like, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate, you know, what you're doing. I, I just want to do this for you. Can I, will you let me do that? Can I just give it to you? And, you know, he was beside himself and you know that wasn't my attention but you know he he thanked me and yeah it was just one of those things like like that 50 bucks doesn't mean anything to me but you know he he was telling me like he'd been always wanted to play guitar and he uh i forget what the story was is but you know he just couldn't afford it or or this other stuff and then he saw this piece of, of equipment and he was like yeah this could this could really kind of help me get into it and i was just like you know just have it, you know, just take it. And, um, I don't think he was offended, but I was, I was, I was definitely kind of concerned because I'm well, the other part, you know, I'm a white guy. And so this was a black gentleman and I didn't want to make him think that this was some kind of racial thing or any other type of thing, you know, strictly just, I want to do something good for you. That's it. And, um, you know, some people kind of get offended whenever you, <laughs> you try to do something nice for them or give them something. Um, it's happened to me more than, more than a couple times. And so now I just have to ask, I'm like, just, can I do this for you? Um, kind of like Shaq, you know, you know, Hey, can, can I, you know, that type of deal. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely pro military. I'm, I'm pro police, you know, just because of my background. And, um, yeah, I understand the sacrifices that people make, you know, in those positions and in those careers, you know, they, they've given up a lot and sometimes you just kind of have to get back. So random acts of kindness <laughs> instead of random acts of violence. Um, just, you know, I think, um, yeah, but, but yeah, um, I, I think that we all need a little bit more love and, and kindness in the world. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of hate out there, you know, just, I don't know. Good vibes only. That's kind of one of the things I'll talk about on the show. It's like, you know, be that, uh, one of, one of my mentors, he talks about people that are energy elevators, you know, whenever you talk yeah, to them, yeah. you know, they're having a good day and you, 
you kind of feel amped and buzzed from having to talk to him. And then, you know, he talks about the soul suckers, <laughs> you know, the people that's like, they're never having a good day. Everything's bad. And, you know, they kind of do kind of suck that energy out of you. And I'm like, he's like, you know, whether you're having a good day or not, you know, just, just put some more light out there in the world, you know, just, you know, try to, try to help people. Um, and speaking of Les Brownie, he has this thing saying, don't tell people you're having a bad day. Tell them you're having a character building day. And I was like, I'm so always going to do that. I'll never say to somebody I'm having a bad day again. <laughs> it's a character building day. I'm working on it. It's making me better. <laughs> well, th that's one of the things that I, I don't know. You didn't, you didn't ask. Some people do. Some people don't. It's just always an interesting thing to me. But whenever I, somebody asks how I'm doing, my response is living the dream. And yeah. that is purposeful in the sense that it started as a joke because uh, when I was still in the military, they brought in a motivational speaker to speak to us. And his whole thing was living the dream and stuff like that. So for like a few weeks after he came by, everybody around base was saying it kind of tongue in cheek, you know, sarcastically or whatever. And then I started to reframe it in my mind over time and going, you know, realistically, I'm either living my dream or I need to change how I'm living. And yeah. what that means to me is essentially that you can't just dream of the retirement of the, the beach, you know, or whatever it is for you that you're working towards. You have to dream of the process because that's 90% of your life is the process. So you should dream of going through the things you're going through to get you to the next stages that you're trying to go to. So we have this tendency. I don't know if it's Americans or humans. It seems more American based in my opinion, but where we constantly have to be dissatisfied with where we are. And, and the yeah. next thing is where it's going to be good for us and everything. And Grass so is me, always greener. Exactly. And so for me, it's, it's living the dream is meaning that I'm appreciating the steps that I'm taking to get to the next steps that I'm trying to get to. Because where I am today is where I wanted to be five years ago. And where I'm going to be in five years is what I'm working towards now. And so you have to appreciate that you're always on that path. And then if you start to fall out of alignment, then you're telling yourself that you need to make a change to continue to live that dream. Yeah. That, that, that's great advice. You know, if, if you're not living your dream, you need to find another one. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, I get it. I get it. Well, Brandon, I, I think we're, uh, we're probably hit our, <laughs> our mark as far as time. I want to thank you sincerely, genuinely for coming on my show. This has been great. Um, if nobody else got anything out of the show, you know, selfishly I did. Um, so, so thank you for, for being on the show, but I think this would be a great time for you to pitch your show. Um, tell us, you know, tell everybody, you know, how they can find you, um, you know, where you're at. I think you're on YouTube and some other things. So feel free to, to pitch what you got. Sure. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got my podcast, uh, starting nowhere. I haven't shot any episodes in quite some time. I'm going to get back to it here soon, but it's starting nowhere on YouTube, uh, Starting Nowhere Podcast is on Spotify, Apple, basically anywhere you're going to go and try to find your Spotify's, uh, excuse me, find your podcast. <laughs> uh, you can you can reach out there. And I always take comments. I welcome people to message me. I'd love to have conversations with you. If you find anything I've said that you disagree with or that you do agree with, whatever it is, please just reach out to me. Uh, I, I do this not just for myself, but to have conversations with people um, in the world who maybe get value out of it or maybe we can spark something else. So Thanks for having me on there. It's been a great, I love to have these kind of conversations. It makes me feel like I did something other than just being lazy with my Saturday. Cause I, I assure <laughs> yes. you I'm going to be lazy with the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I am too. But uh, with that, that's uh, today's episode. Thank you so much, Brandon, for being on the show and everyone have a great day. <laughs>